Welcome to another edition of the Good Confessions podcast, uh, where three friends and pastors take a look at the Good Confession, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. My name is Jonathan Cruz. I'm pastor of Community Presbyterian in Kalamazoo, Michigan, joined, as always, by my two co-hosts, Shane Bennett up in Grand Rapids. How are you doing, Shane? I'm doing well this morning. How about good. you? Yep, good, good. Thanks. Good to hear from you. And Andrew, you doing good? Yes, doing well. Great. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So good to hear from you guys and catch up. Um, <laughs> I know that's our listeners' favorite part of the episode. So uh, Andrew's going to get us started in what is likely going to take us a couple episodes to get through Chapter 7, which is all about God's covenant with man. So, Andrew, you want to uh, help us dive into this deep subject? Absolutely. So we're in Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, on covenant theology and it's been said that Reformed theology is covenant theology. So this is a very central chapter to uh, what we believe, how you study scripture. Um, and uh, let's dig right in. Uh, chapter 7, section 1, it says, The distance between God and the preacher is so great, although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So this starts out with the distance between God and the creature being great. Um, why does it start there? And why does it start there? So... One of the reasons I think it begins here is you'll remember throughout uh, a lot of the previous chapters um, concerning who God is, uh, the attributes of God, God and the Holy Trinity, uh, God's eternal decrees. There's just been this emphasis on the greatness of God um, and this very clear uh, understanding that he is not like us. He is so separate and distinct from us, uh, that if we begin to, begin to understand what it means to have a relationship with God, we have to understand first and foremost that we are very far from him. There's a great distance between him and us at the very heart and foundation of a relationship, any kind of relationship that we would have with God. In other words, we can't raise ourselves up to him because he is so great and beyond us uh if we are to have some kind of relationship with god it requires him coming down to us him meeting us him condescending to us um that's how i would think about this particular idea absolutely so it points out that reasonable creatures owe him obedience as their creator um so you know, I've been seeing this as I preach through Isaiah. It emphasizes that God is the creator. And if God's created, then you're bound to obey him. Uh, you're bound to live as he instructs. And as Shane is saying, he doesn't owe you anything. Uh, you can't, you, you're not, uh, eligible for a reward. Uh, so you do all this service. And it's, it's just what you owe. And I, I was thinking about Luke 17, uh, 9 and 10, mm-hmm. uh, the, a parable where Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I, I was just thinking of Isaiah 45, um, you know, something that Paul draws on later on in Romans 9. You know, can, can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Why have you... Um, why is life in this particular way? What, you know, and, and Paul draws on that when he starts talking about what if God has made vessels of mercy? He uses the clay analogy. What if he has made vessels of, of uh, wrath in order for the vessels of mercy to appreciate the mercy that has been given to them? Just this idea of we are creatures who have been created. We are clay that has been formed out of the dust of the earth, quite literally. Um, and, and that depicts very much our relationship with him, this, this distance, um, that God doesn't owe us anything. Uh, just as if we were to create some piece of art form, we don't owe that art form anything. Um, but rather it owes its total allegiance to us. I just preached that passage, Shane. That was what I preached on Sunday. Why, the, hence why you was on your mind when you said Isaiah. Yep. Jonathan, so you're kind of quiet. Yet, I'm, I'm, I got so much. I'm saving for section two. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, so it says, yet they could not have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. So in other words, we can't get any reward from God unless he changes the game. And how does God change the game here according to the confession? By way of a covenant. Yeah. Absolutely. So in, I don't know, you, you all did have Orton as your professors as well. He, he spoke about it as, um, meeting a stranger. That the, the distance between God and man is so great that the, the only way for us to meet him is by means of the covenant. And that happens to be the very means through which he has decided and determined to condescend to us. Um, that he is not estranged from us, that he is not uh, so near to us that we uh, can come to him uh, as a confidant, but that he does meet with us, particularly in this this way of a covenant. Um, the uh, it might it might be helpful to because the, the confession doesn't kind of give some definition of a covenant, generally speaking. Um. The confession kind of just... Yeah, Jonathan, what, what is the covenant? Huh. Uh, I came out of the foxhole, huh? <laughs> um, right, so... You want me to define it? No, I mean, I could, we could all define it. I'm sure we all have a different nuance to it, which just goes to uh, express the multifaceted nature of a covenant, that it's it's not easily definable because um, it, it takes on different... Or it has so many different functions and um, manifestations. But if we try to get to the kind of common denominator that we find in Scripture and even in the ancient uh, Near Eastern world when they were more common, uh, covenants are 
um, binding promises to the death, I would say, promises to death, uh, where two parties, at least two parties, um, enter into some sort of formal legal uh, binding arrangement and agreement um, where they will uh, be with and for one another. Uh, generally, and we see this in scripture, certainly, but even, you know, historians have revealed that generally covenants are entered into between a, a two parties, one of being of greater importance or stature or strength and the other one being lesser or weaker. So uh, that greater one is the suzerain. He enters into a covenant with the vassal or suzerain nation with a vassal or weaker, you know, par, uh, tribe, party, nation. And that that suzerain offers protection um, provision and the vassal offers or promises um, obedience and service and they would bind themselves to one another through through a covenant and as I mentioned earlier it's a promise to the death which is to say if either party were to break the covenant to to not um, keep their end of the bargain their end of the deal they would be liable to death and so in scripture we see that um, demonstrated in the fact that when covenants, anytime uh, you read the, read the phrase and they made a covenant, the Hebrew actually says and they cut a covenant. Um, it literally says cut every time. And the reason that cutting a covenant was synonymous with making a covenant was because you could not have a covenant unless you cut an animal, unless there was the letting of blood, a bloodshed, which was the sign and the symbol that um, just as this animal has shed its blood to make the covenant, if either one of us renege on our promises, we'll have to shed our blood. We'll, we'll have this blood upon us. Um, it's kind of the idea that, you know, little kids in the playground still say today, like, I promise, cross my heart and hope to die. It's that idea of, I'm so sure about this that I'm willing to, to bank my life on. I'm willing to risk dying if I, if I would break it. So, um, covenants were, were big deals and they existed uh in you know in scripture we understand them especially in terms of God entering into a covenant with Israel but they existed outside of that um in the ancient world and, and so that there was a cultural custom that God appropriates for the benefit of his people to understand his undying promise to us that he would be with us and for us um and so and he does that right from the very beginning but when Moses is writing um the Pentateuch, and he's describing what goes on in the garden, even with Adam, as we're going to get to in the next section. He describes it in ways that are, are reminiscent of a covenant to help us understand just how much God is for us. That's a lot. That was a mouthful, but hopefully that helps. I don't know if you guys want to correct anything I said. I was just Although, thinking, preach. Preach it. <laughs> well, I, I think the only thing I would add, um, you got a lot of the heart of covenant theology, but um, I would I would just add to it that um, one of the helpful ways to think about covenants too. You you mentioned that there's always two parties, uh, and often one party is greater and one party is lesser. Uh, as in a, a king, uh, you know, think of a king swooping in to save another nation and then covenanting with them, uh, sort of like we see. Uh, actually, not sort of the way we see God swooping down to deliver Israel on, from the hand of Egypt, um, very much delivering them out of bondage. And then 
the next thing that we're going to see take place there is God making a covenant with them in Exodus chapter 24. And in that particular scene, blood is shed. Uh, but there's usually in these covenants, you have both conditions and promises. Uh, so one party is, is making uh, a promise. Uh, so for example, what we're going to see in section two on Adam, it, if you do these things, there is a promise held out, but you have to do these things, uh, that there's some co- sort of core uh, relation of conditions and promises being connected to them, uh, where one uh, party will hold out the promise and the other party is to fulfill those uh, commands or obligations to the covenant. Very good. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways people define covenant. I mean, one of the first books I read on covenant was Obama Robertson's book, Christ of the Covenants. And he said it was a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think Jonathan is pointing out that you have covenants between people as well, not just between God and man. Right. And so you, you need a broad definition. I mean, <clears throat> this Robert Shaw book on the Westminster Confession of Faith says a covenant is generally defined to be an agreement between two parties on certain terms. Um, I like, you know, a, a formal agreement with promises and repercussions, rewards for punishment. And, you know, Jonathan's already covered all this. So, uh, Shane? Oh, I'm just going to affirm with you. Yeah, I, I think that there's not two theologians who define covenants in the same way. Um, and w- when you have that many different variants on, on the definition, that it's always helpful to go to the most basic, what do they all have in common? Uh, what, what, is, what is it that unites them all together? And, you know, a basic agreement between two parties seems like a very broad definition that um, – that anyone who is discussing the, the individual parts of the covenant that fall under that um, title fit within well. So I just was resonating or, or um, reflecting on, on your point that you were making, Andrew. Yeah, and it says that this is by God's con- voluntary condescension. And so, you know, it's pointing out it's voluntary. God didn't have to make this covenant with us. He didn't have to offer any reward. Uh, Witsius, an old reformed theologian says, for God has by his promises made himself a debtor to man. Uh, you know, by making promises, you know, if you do this, I will do this. God is entering into this more formal relationship where we can actually gain something from him. Um, and we're going to hear about that in the next section, but it says it's voluntary and it's condescension that not saying that God is condescending towards us, but when we speak of God's condescension, we mean that he's accommodating us. He's, uh, the, the creator is not, not stooping. Uh, you guys talked about swooping, but he's stooping to enter into this agreement with us. Um, he's condescending in that sense. But why don't we get into the next one? Uh, section two says the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So uh, this is called the first covenant here, but it's also called the covenant of works or the uh, covenant of life, if you're learning the children's catechism. Um, who wants to tackle? It's called the 
Adamic covenant or the covenant of creation, the covenant of nature, the covenant of law. I've heard it. It has a lot of names and they all, and I think they're all, you know, accurate. They're just, they're highlighting different things. It's the Adamic covenant because it's made with Adam. It's the creation of life because that's what it, the covenant of life, sorry, because that's what it promises. It's the covenant of creation because that's when it was made. Um, so what, what is promised to Adam and what is required of him? Life. Life with a capital L because he, I mean, he was given life, I would say, right? Uh, not, not based upon any stipulations. God breathed life into him and he became a, uh, nefesh haim. Right? Is that right? Am I Hebrew? Is my Hebrew right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it has to be a different kind of life. It's that life, Genesis 3, 22, 23, right around there when God says, behold, you know, man's eaten fr- fruit and has become like one of us, lest he reach out his hand and also eat from the tree of life and live forever. That's that's what's promised, life forever. And it's based upon two things that the confession writes. As Shane said, there's got to be obligations or stipulations, and it's that he would be perfectly and personally obedient. What am I remembering that is perfect, personal, and perpetual? Estelle, our our beloved Old Testament professor Brian Estelle would always add a third P in there, which the confession doesn't have, but is is I think accurate. It's not so it's perfect, personal, and perpetual. So it's it can't be it can't be um half hearted. It has to be perfect and complete. It can't be done through a delegation. It has to be rendered by Adam. And it's not a one-time event. It's not that you got here today, right now, Adam, you do it, and then we're good. It's You need to live this way. This needs to be your lifestyle. It's a perpetual obedience. Mm-hmm. And it's, in one sense, it's still the requirement that God places on us in one sense, right? I mean, this is what God expects of his creatures, that they would personally be obedient to him all the days of their life, that they'd walk after him. Um, but even more profoundly, Sorry, uh, hopefully, Andrew, this is taking a direction you're interested in going, but this shows us what Christ had to do to, to come in our place. That he rendered a personal obedience that was in every way perfect um, before God. Yeah, that's a great way to tie this into the gospel and to show why affirming, in some sense, the covenant of works is so crucial uh, because what you apply to the first Adam, you're going to then apply to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we hold to the imputation of Adam's sin. And here the confession is getting at that because it's not just Adam. He's a public person. He's representing his posterity as the federal head. And, and here it says life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity. So everyone who's going to come after him, is affected by this. The whole human race is affected by what Adam did. And in the same way, Romans 5 draws this out, that Christ as our federal head, the federal head of believers. And that's how what he did 2,000 years ago can affect us uh, the same way through imputation. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Shane, uh, explaining this? Well, actually... I was just thinking about the criticism that sometimes comes 
uh, with covenant theology, that this really is uh, uh, central to this, this structure that we're looking at of a covenant of, with Adam, uh, one that he fails and falls at within the very first three chapters of the Bible. Uh, and then what will come after in section three here of the covenant we have with, with Christ or the covenant of grace. Um, but one of the charges that often comes out uh, against covenant theology as well, you know, the, the word and term covenants never used in those first few, few, uh, chapters of scripture. So how is it, uh, you know, that we can call it a covenant or that we, we would use this terminology for something that doesn't even seem to appear in that particular early section. Um, and I would just to quote another one of our beloved professors, uh, <laughs> who would say, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Meaning that if you have all the essential elements of it in present, then that's why we can use a term that's not necessarily found there. We do the same thing when we talk about the Trinity. The word Trinity is not actually found anywhere in the scriptures, but we see all these elements that point to the reality of the oneness of God, as well as the uh, functions of the, the separate functions of each of the persons uh, within the Godhead. And so we, we use a term that's not found within the scriptures to define what it is that we're seeing here or seeing in the scriptures itself. Um, so I just think that that was a, a, something to consider as it's it's a pretty frequent charge for those who are unfamiliar with covenant theology coming into it. Right, that's a good point. And, you know, we can appeal to Hosea 6-7, but not everyone agrees that that's a reference. It says, you know, like Adam, they transgress the covenant. Um but that's debated, but you're pointing out that this is part of the superstructure of scripture. And there's a lot of ways that scripture is tied together. And we're, we're essentially doing systematic theology. We're tying together all these scriptures and saying, what does this teach us about covenant? Um, well, uh, that seems like a good place for us to end. Um, and we're going to see the covenant of grace in the next section which is where this leads us, and that, that's uh, why it was so helpful for Jonathan to point it to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and his fixing uh, what the first Adam um, broke and fulfilling the conditions of the covenant of works uh, that we stand under in, a, in a condemnation. So we'll, we'll uh, pick up there this time with Section 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Thanks for listening, and uh, join us next time. I think I might have just asked the same question twice. Why does it start there? Why does it start there? But um, why does why do we begin there? You're fired, Andrew. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, go back and edit. A third way. Yeah. No. I-